views expressed are not endorsed by the United States Department of Defense or its components. Welcome back to the Flyover Podcast as part of USAFA Aviation. Today is episode five. As always, I'm your host, John Costello, and with me, I have my co-host, Ezra Barnison. And with me, with us, we have the privilege today of having Major PJ Hussey, an HH-60G PAVOC pilot and current instructor in the History Department at the United States Air Force Academy. Sir, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me, and I do think this is pretty cool, what you guys are doing. So. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, Appreciate you. Good, good work so far. We'll make it a good one. Oh, so, yeah. And congrats also on being done. Duly years With over. Duly made it year. through. Made it <laughs> through. Let's go. Uh, that's got to be a really good feeling. So congrats. It is. Thank it you is. so much. So yeah. can we get a brief background on your career? Yeah. So uh, also went to the Air Force Academy like you all. Um, I came here in 2007 for basic training. Uh, graduated in 2011 as a history major. So congrats also to Ezra. Yeah. Part, of, part of the DFH team up here in the DFH library right now. Uh, so I graduated 2011, was planning on going to pilot training right off the bat, but got a last second opportunity to go to uh, graduate school at the College of William & Mary to get my master's in history through the GSP program. So if you get an opportunity to do that, it's, uh, it's pretty cool. Uh, so I spent about a year, year and a half there. It's where I met my wife, uh, Kara, who now works down the registrar uh, as an AOCO, which is pretty awesome. Um, following that, I went to pilot training at Vance Air Force Base in Oklahoma, where I flew the two T-6. Then I went to Fort Rucker. So that's where you would go uh, directly from here now if you get selected to fly helicopters. And that's where we flew the Huey to uh, finish pilot training. Uh, and then after that, you get selected to fly one of the three helicopter airframes that the Air Force has. I got selected to fly the H-60 Pavehawk. Uh, and you go to Albuquerque for the schoolhouse, so Kirtland Air Force Base, where you get qualified on that aircraft. From there, first operational unit was Moody Air Force Base in Georgia, so a big rescue wing uh, there in Valdosta. Spent three years there, which was awesome. Uh, and then pre prior to coming here, I was in Aviana, Italy for three years. Um, so if you are looking for a sweet assignment, uh, Italy has to be at the top of your list, because that was pretty awesome. Uh, and then I, I came back here two years ago now. Uh, I've been teaching History 100 uh, to you fine cadets. Uh, it was a good class. It was a good class. I mean, we had uh, yeah, your history teacher on here. Now we got mine. Yeah, so yeah. So two history teachers. Yeah, that's, uh, that's a good start to your podcast. But <laughs> uh, so I've been doing that for two years. And I can honestly say it's been the best uh, job I've had in the Air Force so far. So, so that's a little bit of background on me. Yeah, so uh, came here 2007. I believe. Yeah. Um, what What made you want to come to USAFA? What made you want to join the Air Force to serve? Yeah, so I grew up in a very small town, northern Indiana. Um, and I think part of me just wanted to do something different. I wanted to get out of there. Uh, and join the Air Force is definitely a way to serve your serve the country. So that, that always had an appeal to me, having some family members that had served in uh, previous generations. Uh, so I think that combined with I did want to fly uh, back as a high school student. Um, so coming out here to Colorado was cool, uh, getting to serve my country in the Air Force, potentially being an Air Force officer, and then uh, high likelihood of becoming a pilot through this institution kind of checked all the boxes for me. Uh, so that's really what got me here in the first place in 2007. Uh, yeah, so. So you mentioned you always knew you wanted to fly. Did you always know you wanted to fly rotary aircraft or helicopters or? 
What no, did that process so look like? I came here like probably most cadets in my generation at least thinking I want to be a aero engineer and I want to fly the F-22. So that's that's what got me here. It wasn't until much later on. I can't honestly say that I even knew that the Air Force had helicopters <laughs> uh, when I came here. I don't remember if I knew that or not. Um, but the opportunity to fly helicopters, that came much later on. And uh, I made that decision in pilot training um, for me personally. So, so that's interesting. So they, mm-hmm. it was much later on when you like split paths with the fixed wing? Yeah, so and it's going to be different for you all. Um, now that we have, like, I think it's still called the Helo Next program, but it's pretty new. Uh, for us, we all went to T6s. We all flew the T6. And then we chose whether or not we wanted to fly helicopters and had to get selected for that. Uh, for you all, you will have to make that decision here at the Air Force Academy. We can talk about that later if you want. Mm-hmm. Um, but that'll be a change between what my, my generation uh, went through and what you all will have to go through if you want to go the helicopter route. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So. And so what did that look like during pilot training? Like, was it your instructors telling you, like, you might want to go that way? Or was that you kind of realizing? Yeah, so when I was going through T6s, I really enjoyed it. um, But there was a, I really enjoyed flying fixed wing. But there was a documentary that came out called Inside Combat Rescue. And it was a National Geographic documentary. I don't know if you guys have seen it, heard about it. So it's, I think it's still available. You can probably find it online somewhere, but... Uh, that came out right as I was going through T6s, and it was a documentary about rescue and what they were doing in the, Af- in the war in Afghanistan. And that's what really sold the mission to me, uh, was watching that documentary, seeing what the combat search and rescue mission looked like at that time in Afghanistan. And uh, that's when I decided, this is for me. Like, I have to put my name in the hat uh, to go fly helicopters to try to get 60s. Yeah. Okay, so you knew you wanted to get the 60s yes okay as soon as i watched that documentary i was like that i need to go to fort rucker i need to try to get the h60 and i need to be part of this mission awesome so, awesome mm-hmm. that's awesome so yeah. you eventually did end up getting to fly that csr mission what does that kind of look like or like what's a day in the life of the csr mission so there's the csr mission it's it sounds very straightforward right like there's someone that needs rescuing we need to go search for that person find them land the helicopter pick them up get them back to safety but there's so many very vari- like types, complexities, variables that go into every rescue mission. Really, each one's a little bit different. So a day in the life is generally trying to train uh, to figure out what that next mission is going to look like. Um, so usually you fly hopefully two to three times a week, and when you're not flying, you're thinking about that mission uh, and trying to get better at it and really playing the what if game. Like in a future conflict, what is a rescue mission going to look like? And how can we prepare ourselves now uh, to go out and train to be the best at it as, that we can be uh, without knowing the future? So that's kind of what the big picture day in the life looks like uh, in a rescue squadron. All right. Gotcha. So I'm, I'm, I'm kind of curious. So we had uh, Lieutenant Colonel Rudder on A-10 mm-hmm. guy yeah. um, on episode two. Yeah, he's awesome. He is. He's, he's yeah. my AOC currently. And oh, he's the cool. OIC of the Aviation Club. Uh, awesome. So, yeah, anyways. So he, we were talking, obviously, A-10 Sunset. Mm-hmm. and where that combat search and rescue from the A-10, where is that kind of replaced sort of by? Yeah, that's a really good question. And do you, like, what is the difference between what the A-10 brings and what the, like, Hilo platforms bring to the CSAR mission? And how yeah. is that going to be changed, or are they going to be able to pick up, hopefully pick up the slack when the A-10 leaves? So every CSAR mission is a little bit different, but ideally what we always trained to was... Uh, 
a rescue vehicle is what you call it. And that was what we were as a helicopter. So the H60. So literally the vehicle that will actually make the pickup of the survivor or the isolated person. Uh, where the A-10s fit into that, and I'm sure he talked about it, was uh, the Sandy Roll. Uh, and what their job was, uh, they did they did a lot. Um, everything from getting overhead the survivor and making sure they knew where they were, that they were the right person, that they could authenticate them. Uh, that was kind of Sandy One's role, and that's an A-10, and A-10s are very good at that. Uh, and then they would kind of be the quarterback, trying to get the rescue vehicle to that person so that we could eventually rescue them and get them home. Along the way, ideally, you also have other A-10s that are protecting you as the helicopter. Usually there's two helicopters on these missions. And so ideally, and the A-10 is a perfect platform for it, you have about four A-10s. So two taking care of the survivor and two protecting the helicopters, which are kind of like the golden egg trying to get to the person itself. Um, so as far as your question of like, where does it, where do we go from there if the A-10 goes away? Uh, and that that to me is a huge emphasis item in the future of the combat search and rescue mission is trying to educate as many platforms, as many people, uh, as many different technologies as possible to be able to pick up that role that the A-10 has traditionally played. So that could be an F-16, it could be an F-35, uh, it could also be some kind of unmanned asset. Um, who knows what it's going to look like, but I think the goal if the A-10 goes away will be for us to play that education, educational piece. So making sure that uh, the rest of the Air Force can pick up that mission uh, that the Sandys or the A-10s have traditionally played. Does that make sense? Yeah, that yeah that makes perfect okay. sense. Cool. And so if there's, you know, say there's a person behind enemy lines, they're down. Mm -hmm. What does that look like from the time you guys get the call to the time you guys pick them up or get back to base? Yeah, so there's really two major ways to split that mission up. So. The first one we call it a pre-planned combat search and rescue mission. So that's where we know a lot more about the situation. So that person has been shot down or has had to eject, unfortunately, for whatever reason. And we kind of already know where they are, when they need to be picked up. Uh, and we can literally pre-plan it out to the best of our ability. Uh, then there's another mission, which is way more dynamic and that's some kind of alert mission. So you're sitting alert on the ground in your helicopter or in the sky doing circles, and you get the notification that someone has ejected or someone needs to be rescued. And that is much more of what we call like a pickup game. So we could be flying to a location and it's just a general idea of what's happening. And so we have to start calling in, hey, where is this person exactly? Uh, who's protecting us? Who's gonna protect the survivor? How can we get gas? Because we usually need to do some kind of aerial refueling. Uh, and that becomes super dynamic. And you don't know what those missions are going to look like until you're literally in one of them, if that makes sense. Mm. Uh, so ideally, you always have a rescue vehicle. Could be a helicopter. Could be something else. And then you always have someone trying to authenticate the survivor. So trying to make sure that they're the right person, get them in the right place at the right time so that the rest of the force can come in and rescue them. Um, but like I said, every rescue mission does look different. So they're all they're all very unique, all very complex. Yeah, that's so, cool. So something yeah. I want to touch on is you talked about refueling. So yeah. kilo to plane refueling, like, mm -hmm. I don't know, it seems hard to me. Like, how, yeah. how does it work um, with airspeeds? 
Yeah. Like typically, obviously, planes go faster than helicopters. Yeah. But so how, how does the re refueling process of helicopters in general and how does it work on the yeah, payphone? So, so generally, it's some kind of variant of a C-130. So you can look up videos of that, but it's usually a C-130 because they can actually slow down barely to the point where we can hang with them. We can fly with them at the same airspeed. So your question about airspeeds, right? Usually it's very slow for a fixed wing. So if you look at videos, for example, like we always flew with HC-130 when I was deployed. Uh, we kind of viewed them as our third ship, and part of their role was obviously to, to aerial refuel us. Uh, but they're flying almost at stall airspeed, and we are like max power, like trying to catch up to them because obviously like we cannot fly as fast, fast as a fixed wing uh, generally. Um, really, it's a skill that you always just have to practice in the community. So the brand new co-pilots will struggle with it just because it's literally brand new to them. Uh, and then it becomes more like riding a bike. So the more times you do it, the more it becomes second nature to you. Uh, so on deployments generally, um, at least historically, like you get really good at aerial refueling just because you get a lot of reps every time you go fly. Um, but it's just one of those skills that you pick up along the way in training. And how so, often do you have to refuel? Uh, I mean, it all depends on how much fuel your helicopter can carry to begin with. Mm. Um, generally, you know, two to three hours uh, of fuel you can have on your helicopter. Um, so if you're on a mission that's six, eight hours, you might have to fuel, you know, two or three times uh, for a mission. And how do you coordinate that with like the tanker community? Like, is that something yeah. that's usually pre-planned ahead of time or like, do they have a schedule? Like we're going to be here at this time, come meet us or. Yeah, there's a lot of ways to do it. So we prefer in our community in the combat search and rescue community right now to work very closely with the HC 130 community. Um, I think Colonel Rudder talked a little bit about that airframe, which is super awesome, but they're dedicated to the rescue mission. So uh, you're either stationed with them or are based pretty close to them and you work with them uh, to the point where it's pretty second nature to call them up and, and do air refueling. If they're not available, then that's when it gets a little bit more complicated and a lot more planning goes into it. Um, but uh, it's really all done like there's standard formats, standard uh, forms, uh, and that, that's where the training piece comes in because you could have an MC-130 in theater uh, and you could be very physically, geographically separated from them, but then a rescue mission happens, and all of a sudden you have to start coordinating it in the middle of a rescue mission. And so that's, that's sort of the most complex uh, air, air refueling uh, aspect of the mission that you can, you can expect. So mm. does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So um, I know we were talking a little bit. So when you watch that CSAR documentary, you decided, yeah. okay, the, the Pavehawk or the HA-60 is for me. Yeah. Um, so could you touch a little bit on the other rotary aircraft in the Air Force and what missions they play mm. into the overall operational, what the Air Force does? Yeah. And how does it differ? And why the HA-60 is so like keen to the CSAR mission compared to the other aircraft? Yeah, so we can start with the, the other airframes. So right now, uh, we're still flying the Huey, and that's actually, I think, pretty cool. Like, that's an old Vietnam aircraft, but they do, you know, one of the most important missions in the Air Force, um, which is nuclear security. So, you know, working at uh, the missile fields um, in places like Minot, uh, in Wyoming, uh, and they, they are flying very regularly on that very important mission. Um, so they'll actually get 
typically a lot more hours and they'll upgrade to aircraft commander and uh, instructor a lot faster than the H-60s just because of the, the regularity of which they're flying. Um, obviously there's us, the H-60, and then the third one then is the CB-22. And I think the CB-22 is really cool. I don't know too much about um, their community and their culture because I just haven't been part of it. Um, but they're, they're definitely more on the AFSOC side. You can probably expect more like infill, exfill, uh, kind of resupply missions uh, from them. Uh, but those are the three tracks you can get if you go rotorering right now uh, in the Air Force. Um, what was your follow-on question to that? Uh, what makes each platform like specific to their missions? Yeah, like sure. what, what, how are they specialized? Yeah, so if you think about like the CV-22, it can fly farther, farther range, fly faster, because it does have that fixed wing capability to it. Um, so that's its biggest strength. When it comes to, I think the H-60, uh, we we kind of supplement each other for the for the rescue mission because uh, we can get into tighter spots. Uh, we have probably uh, better like hoist capability, so if we can't land and we need to hoist someone out of like the trees, for example, or the mountain environment, uh, maybe we're better suited for that. Um, but the, I think the, the Air Force has designed basically the H sixty has tailored the H, their version of the H sixty, the Payfoc, specifically for. Uh, that CSAR mission. So, so speaking of different versions of the aircraft, how does yeah. the Pavehawk differ from the Blackhawk? You know, legendary aircraft. Yeah. So right away, like the first thing you can tell uh, between an Army Blackhawk and an Air Force uh, Pavehawk is that we're going to have that air refueling capability. So if you see a probe sticking out the nose of uh, of what looks like a Blackhawk, that's a good indication that that is a Pavehawk, and that's obviously there specifically tailored for the rescue mission, right? Because we might have to fly a really far distance without landing in order to execute the mission. Uh, whereas Army Blackhawks are typically closer, you know, to their customer, which is which is the soldier on the ground. So that's the biggest difference. Um, there's also some avionics upgrades, uh, weather radars, uh, Doppler uh, kind of capability, as well as we have like a FLIR. So um, sort of like an imaging, imaging technology that uh, works sometimes, can be useful, uh, but there's some upgrades to that kind of stuff that's, like I said, is specifically tailored to the Air Force Rescue Mission as opposed to the Army Utility kind of helicopter mission. Um, so those are the major differences. And so obviously you'll see differences on the Navy version as well, the Coast Guard version. So we, each service kind of have its has its own uh, version of the Blackhawk. Okay, so yeah. compared to the Blackhawk, the yeah, are there any downsides? Because all I'm hearing is the Air Force has the better H-860, but is, are, yeah, is there any downsides really uh, yeah. where the Blackhawk is more capable? Yeah, so because of what we add to our helicopter, we are heavier. Um, so that is, in my opinion, that's our biggest downside compared to a normal Army Blackhawk. So they're able to carry more people, uh, more weight, uh, more fuel. Uh, they're able to fly higher um, because they're lighter. Um, so that, that's the trade-off, I think, the Air Force, um, and I'm not like an aero engineer or anything, but to my understanding, that's the trade-off we've made, is we're heavier because we have extra equipment uh, to do that Air Force CSAR mission. Um, but I had an experience once at the High Altitude Training School, uh, which is what the Army runs out in Eagle County here in Colorado, and I got to fly uh, their lightest version of the Blackhawk possible, and we could get up to like 14,000 feet, for example. Uh, whereas the Air Force 
uh, helicopter that we brought out there is a little bit heavier, couldn't quite get up to the altitude. So like th- those are the kind of trade-offs you'll see uh, in helicopter design engineering generally is uh, if we add stuff to a helicopter, it could be really cool, but could also uh, make us a little heavier, maybe not perform as well, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. So, so speaking of other services, what's it like coordinating with other services and like working all together to accomplish the mission? Like what's mm-hmm. that communication lines looking like? Uh, so you're talking about like working with the army yeah. or the Navy. Yep. Uh, so I think that's a really cool part of our mission. It's not necessarily like our primary mission. So our primary mission will all, always be to serve the downed air crew in the Air Force. Uh, but for example, in Afghanistan, uh, the Air Force was doing really good work uh, supporting the army and doing the ca- casualty evacuation mission. Uh, so how we go about doing that is once again, through really good training, really good ta- uh, tactics, techniques, procedures, uh, to make sure that even though we're different services and we could be speaking different languages, when it comes to actually trying to rescue someone, uh, we're all literally on the same sheet of paper. Um, you'll see that it's nine line CASVAC, uh, very standard uh, procedures, just like an A-10 working with the Army uh, for a different, different mission, uh, which would be close air support. Uh, when we work with the Army, it's usually casualty evacuation, and there's uh, standards that both services trained to in order to uh, fulfill those requirements. Mm. Yeah. And so what does uh, your normal training look like, you know, when you're not actively doing the job? Uh, so in my opinion, like the, the best training we usually get is at night. night. Night flying in the helicopter is by far the most challenging. And so training, you know, usually 50% of the sorties are going to be during the day, but then those 50% at night are super important. And generally, a, a typical sortie goes into, hey, can we go out and warm up? Can we go land? Can we go hover? Uh, if possible, the best training is getting people on the ground to actually hook up to our hoist, actually get people, we call it live hoisting. Uh, that's some really good training. Very simple, very like getting back to the basics. Then once you do that, you can usually put together some kind of scenario where we're like, hey, this could be a future rescue scenario. Let's go train to it, see if we can do it. And then the most important part of every training mission is the debrief. So you come back, you see what went wrong, what went well, uh, and how can you improve in the future. So that, that's when you're not actually doing the operational mission, you're doing the training mission. You're still trying to think, what could a future rescue mission look like? And can we go execute it uh, to the best of our ability? How long are uh, like actual operational missions, not training? Like if you, mm-hmm. like what's the longest you really can, are ever in the air? So with that air refueling capability, they could be, you know, 12 plus hours, right? And that's some of the longest missions I've heard of are people being in an aircraft for 12 hours. Uh, but then there's also missions that are right outside the base, and that's, those could be over in 20 minutes. So it kind of gets back to that idea that rescue is a very dynamic mission, very complex, and none of the rescue missions ever look the same. Uh, so you could expect literally anything from, hey, we're... In the, in the helicopter, we've picked the guy up or person up in 20 minutes, or you could get that really long range over water, over the desert, 12-hour CSAR mission, uh, and anything in between. So it's uh, training missions. Typically, we try to train for about three hours at a time. Mm. So, What's the longest mission you've ever had to find? What's like the story mm-hmm. behind that? Yeah, so the longest I've been in a helicopter uh, would have been on a deployment. Um, would have been nine hours straight of uh, air refueling and it was most it was all alert um 
And then uh, we also supported rescue efforts at Hurricane Harvey. Uh, and for those missions, we were, we were flying basically 12 hours straight. Um, we'd, go, we'd get on the ground to refuel in those, those scenarios, but uh, 12 hours straight in the helicopter. And was that just like, was that actual like rescue, like getting people out of like harm's way? Or is that just like kind of spotting things? Yeah, so that was rescue. So that was, uh, you know, it was very tragic to see, brutal to see for the local communities, but you had houses, neighborhoods that were completely flooded. And so that was going around and seeing who was on their rooftop, who couldn't escape the flooding, uh, sending the PJs down uh, on a hoist to the rooftops and, and getting people out of there. Uh, back to a, a safe place that wasn't flooded. So that was what those missions looked like. Awesome. Mm-hmm. That's so, pretty insane. I mean, yeah. like, what was the, what was, like, the preparation for that? Or, like, was mm-hmm. that just, uh, oh, we know we're going to have to go there to rescue people? Or was that, like, a dynamic, oh, we got to get there? Yeah, so we had about three days, four days notification um, to get there. Uh, and then it, it became kind of dynamic. And I think that is why people like the rescue mission is because it is very dynamic. Like you don't know what you're going to get each time you go out and fly a real rescue mission. Um, But it's also what makes it complicated and what makes that training environment extra important to make sure that when you, when it actually happens and you don't know if it's going to happen sometimes until the last second uh, that you're always ready to go. Mm. So awesome. So you've, you've been deployed. Mm-hmm. and uh, you've probably been all over the world. Uh, so could you talk a little bit about where you've been specifically? What's been your favorite place to be? And yeah. you know what, what's the best story you've got uh, so far in your career? Uh, so the best, well, the best story I'd have to say is uh, the Hurricane Harvey experience, just because that was, it was cool to see a, a big team come together, you know, C-130s, uh, H-60s, guardian angels, so the PJs, the crows, all come together in a very short time period and actually do, do some really good stuff in Texas and Louisiana. So that'll always be uh, my favorite story of the community. As far as the coolest place in the world, like nothing will be Aviano, Italy. Aviano, <laughs> Italy is a beautiful base, a very complicated base, but uh, what we were doing there was really cool because what we were doing is we were moving an entire squadron from one base to another base in a foreign country. So from England to Italy. And so getting to set up a new base was uh, kind of felt like running a startup at times. Like, hey, we have helicopters here, we have airfields, we have some landing zones. Like, how do we put all this together now and make this a good training environment? And along those lines, we got to go not only work with the Italians, but we were working with the Croatians, uh, the Slovenians, a lot of Balkan countries and then just a lot of other countries around NATO in general. So that was also a rewarding experience, but also just awesome location because it took us to all, all parts of Europe, uh, which is really cool. And working with all those militaries, all our, all our allies in that region uh, is also a really rewarding experience. So. What makes Aviano, Italy specifically, like the base so complicated? Uh, so there's a lot of missions that go, go in and out of Aviano. Like it's a strategic location. So you have F-16s there. You have a lot of transient aircraft coming through there. Uh, and then you, all of a sudden they threw the rescue mission right in the middle of it as well. Uh, so unlike the previous base I was at, Moody Air Force Base, which was, I would say, it was a, it was a pretty active base, but it was very s- focused on, you know, the three airframes that were there. Aviano just has so much going on uh, that it becomes complicated, if that makes sense. 
because it's such a strategic location. So, mm. what was that like when you were at Moody working, you know, specifically in the community? And what did you guys yeah. do there? Uh, so honestly, Moody was uh, it was the coolest experience because of the people that were there. So uh, you're in Valdosta, Georgia. It's a small town. Uh, it's kind of a unique Air Force base, uh, but it's a big rescue base and a big uh, rescue squadron there, the 41st Rescue Squadron. Um, so I really enjoyed enjoyed that experience, mostly because of the people. Like uh, some of my best friends were made uh, doing that because we were very busy. Uh, we were deployed all over the place all, all the time while I was there. Uh, and we were all very focused. We had a very mission-focused uh, mindset throughout it all. So the friendships you created there were, were awesome. So. Awesome. So I know one of the questions we were going to ask, um, and we asked uh, Colonel Dietz, who obviously uh, flies with the backseater, yeah. is, you know, you're in, a, you're in a terrible situation, unfortunate, mm -hmm. but who do you want next to you uh, being your co-pilot and why? Uh, so I did have a follow-on question to this. Okay. So are you looking for a specific person or just in general? Whatever you're feeling. Okay. So if you don't, don't want to like, so pick in the, yeah, in the future, I want someone who's been in my history 100 class. Just kidding. I, uh, honestly, who would I want next to me is someone who just takes the mission really seriously and takes it to heart and is, uh, is just a professional, right? So they're able to uh, live, breathe, think, uh, rescue, and they're always a critical thinker because, like I, like I keep saying, uh, every rescue mission is going to look different. So someone who can think on their toes, uh, that's who I want next to me in the helicopter. Also someone who can hover the helicopter really well uh, isn't a bad thing either. So, so, so if you're under yeah. fire, do you have a name for us? Uh, Rich Shanda. Okay, Rich you, would you like to elaborate on why? Why, why, why is he uh, your co-pilot of choice? So he was actually my aircraft commander on cool. the deployment, but uh, most critical thinker in the community, uh, in my opinion. Uh, also, you could always tell he had, he was a good leader, right? So he always had not only my back, but he was usually in charge of up to 14 plus people on every mission we did. And you could tell he was always thinking about each person on that mission, what their role was and how he could, uh, how he could lead them in that role. So like I said, critical thinker and then thinking about others on the team. Uh, that that was him so, so. so i want to talk a little bit about um just the relationship between the pilots uh -huh. up, up in the front like what exactly are you both is one specialized towards one thing and somebody yeah. else the other or like what's the relation who does what and can mm -hmm. you is it both like are you both ambidextrous and you can do the other one's job so ideally yes so ideally you have two really experienced people right that are interchangeable but generally how it works is you're going to have an aircraft commander or a flight lead and then a brand new, could be a brand new co-pilot, maybe an experienced co-pilot that's not quite as there, uh, quite as good as far as their skills yet flying the aircraft. Um, so usually what you have is like someone running the mission. So they're the ones with the map, talking on the radios, uh, really doing more of that management role. And then you have a co-pilot who's literally flying most of the time. And that's why it's really important for co-pilots to take that job seriously because they're the ones flying, keeping the aircraft straight and level, uh, while the flight commander, the aircraft commander, is uh, doing all like the managerial roles, if that makes sense. Have so. you ever had uh, struggles like working with someone, trying to like mm -hmm. teach them, you know, what's going on, or like how does the education work if it's not? What's, what's the learning curve too? Yeah, the learning curve. Yeah, so 
Uh, well, the the progression will go. So if you all become helicopter pilots, which that'd be awesome if you are, uh, you will go to the schoolhouse in Albuquerque, right? And you'll become a co-pilot. Um, from there, like we understand, like you're not going to enter the operational world perfect. Like you're going to have a, a huge learning curve. So like that, those first couple months, that's the biggest learning curve for a co-pilot. Once they can, once they are trusted to fly the aircraft safely, land the aircraft safely, hover safely, um, shut, start the aircraft safely, shut down the aircraft safely. That's when you go to to aircraft commander, and you'll go through a syllabus for that, another check ride for that. Uh, and now you're in charge of that aircraft. Once you're good at that, you're usually like a wingman or chalk two. Uh, once you're good at that, that's when you go to flight lead. And so each of those along the way has its own learning curve. By the time you're a flight lead, you're probably pretty comfortable flying the aircraft. And now you have to get more comfortable uh, leading two aircraft, leading a team of 14 people potentially, uh, and then really managing risk. So making really good decisions uh, in a complex environment. So, but each of those steps has its own learning curve that I would say is pretty steep. What's that uh, relationship look like with your enlisted force in the back of the mm -hmm. aircraft? And like, how does that coordination work? So that's my favorite part about, about the uh, H-60 mission specifically, is how uh, much of a team the enlisted force and the, the pilot or the officer forces. So in, on each mission, you're gonna have two SMAs, so special mission aviators is what they're called. Very close-knit professional community they're the ones that run the hoist. They're the technical experts in the back. Uh, they'll, f they'll shoot the gun uh, when we need to. Um, and really that relationship, in my opinion, is unique in the Air Force because it is way less rank driven and way more performance and leadership driven, if that makes sense. So you are close knit to the point where they don't have time to call you sir in the aircraft. They're, you know, they can take, they can take the lead so they can be directive uh, because they might their situational awareness might be higher than yours at that time uh, so the relationship with the enlisted force in the CSAR community is probably the most important relationship there is uh, so if you're not someone who's looking for like a, a leadership challenge then stay away from that but if you're someone who's ready to get out there not only fly and be a good pilot but also be a be a good leader uh, then that's the strength of the 60 community I think so yeah, so I think um, kind of shifting towards the Air Force future, the future fight, where the PAVOC plays into that. I know, like, I think on the Osama bin Laden mission, flying really low um, to basically not be seen. And so how does that work, um, kind of like infiltrating enemy airspaces mm -hmm. if we needed to? Pure adversaries say, we're going to Southeast Asia. Yeah. And um, we need to infiltrate, uh, like, a very good air defense system. Can... Are helos and planes in general for flying really low infiltrate that airspace and how do we do it? So that is the question of the day right now in the 60 community is how much risk can we accept? Uh, where can we go? Where can we fly safely? Where can we, where should we not fly? Uh, but I will say the strength of the helicopter is definitely not its speed, right? But it can fly low. So if you're looking at, uh, I don't know if you just browse what's going on in the Ukraine war right now, uh, you can see what's you can kind of get a picture of like hey they it's super risky to fly a helicopter in that environment but they still are however they're flying at like 50 feet and below in order to survive so the strength of helicopters certainly it can fly low uh, the weakness is that 
uh, it is very vulnerable to uh, modern weapons systems. So, okay, so just touching back on that Osama bin Laden mission, mm -hmm. there are rumors like some kind of fancy new stealth aircraft, like stealth yeah. helicopter. Yeah, is that a if you can speak to it, is that a thing? How does that look like? And could we ever get a stealth helicopter? Or, yeah, or, so if, or if we're going to reword it, uh, could could a stealth helicopter even be possible? Yes, that's so a good way that will be for the uh, aero department to answer. <laughs> um, honestly, like I've heard rumors of, you know, there were stealth helicopter used right in the Osama bin Laden raid. I think there's even pictures online that you can look up. Uh, obviously, that's a huge strength. So if that technology exists or will exist someday, that's a game changer for the helicopter world. Um, I think the challenge with stealth helicopters is, of course, we have this big fan on top of our helicopter, which is not very stealthy. Um, so anything that can make it stealthy would be, you know, less noise, less heat. Um, uh, I think the, the question of the day will be in the future, could we have unmanned rescue vehicles? Um, not necessarily stealth, but does that technology exist? Will it exist? Will some smart cadet in the aero department uh, invent that? Uh, I'll leave that up to you all, but uh, it's a good question, right? Like, what is the future of the helicopter on the modern battle battlefield? When we so. uh, talk about unmanned um, and JD, um, and whether it's, you know, it's, it's all rumor, but like, if it's going to be completely autonomous or if it's going to like be an unmanned wingman to an F-35, yeah. do you see that kind of transition being the same on the helo side? If it, if, it, if it does go that way, instead of just going like straight to autonomous? So would you say like one un unmanned vehicle and another something like Something like that, yeah. Yeah, I could see the strengths in that. Um, there's, a, there's a lot of people smarter than me working on stuff like that right now. Um, but I think in the future, like the biggest strength we could bring would be numbers. So if you could send 10 unmanned rescue vehicles and we're okay with losing most of them, right? because uh, we're not losing people, then maybe that's the way to go. But maybe a step along that way is what you're saying, is maybe, hey, the helicopter we actually send into the high-risk terminal area, uh, that might be unmanned. And maybe they're controlled or mission-managed by a, more of a traditional PAVOC or something like that. So, uh, and I guess part of my advice for people looking to go into helicopters in the future, whether they're in your class or other classes, would be to have that kind of critical thought going into it like hey this could be how I'm trained uh, but in the future I need to lead change and whatever that change could look like could be technological it could be doctrine um, you need to be ready to to lead change yeah. okay um, another question just kind of on the development of the helo side of air power so yeah. I mean I think a lot of the media buzz or attention is all like what's the next fighter jet yeah but um, on the on the helo side of things like after the Osprey I, I think Osprey is the, the latest for the, the Air Osprey. Force. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Where, where is the Air Force going? Is there any like talks of, okay, this is what we're doing next. This is the next program that's in development. Yeah. So right now there is the whiskey. So I flew the golf model. Um, I have never flown the whiskey model, but that is currently being uh, rolled out. So HH60W instead of HH60G. Uh, that is definitely an upgraded version of the golf but it's still a Blackhawk, right? Like there's not, nothing too revolutionary about it, um, but it does have some awesome upgrades. As far as beyond that, I think the questions you're asking are the right ones. Could we take less people off and still do the mission? Could we fly faster? Could we fly more stealthily? Whatever that could look like. Um, and I know 
between the Army, Navy, and the Air Force, there's plenty of projects out there about what that next helicopter could look like. But the questions you're asking are exactly what uh, the decision makers are asking right now. So, hmm. so taking it back a little bit, uh, you obviously uh, deployed uh, to Afghanistan. No, well, no, or not, not to Afghanistan. Yeah, sorry. Afghanistan, um, yeah. So you deployed. You deployed. Uh, was it Syria or so, Saudi? So we were uh, in Turkey and oh, we were supporting okay. the fight against ISIS uh, in Syria and Iraq. So okay. we would fly out of Turkey and we would go do missions uh, in Syria and Iraq. Okay, and so what is that, uh, what's the daily schedule like when you're on deployment? How does that differ from when you're back stateside or you know, doing your normal mission? Yeah, so there's a lot of ways that rescue squadrons do it. While we were there, we were, we were just doing uh, shifts. So mm -hmm. we would have uh, two formations worth of aircrew, and we would be either on shift or on alert is what we would call it, or off shift or off alert. And uh, while we were on alert, um, if something bad happened, and luckily while I was out there, nothing uh, too, too bad happened, um, they were going to be the ones that had to be airborne, you know, within a couple minutes and to flying towards that survivor as fast as possible. The golden hour is kind of what we call it, and that's the goal. So can you get airborne and can you get to that survivor in an hour? That's the, idea, the ideal goal. Um, so on deployment, you're basically, your day-to-day -day life is focused around that golden hour. Um, and if you're on shift, you're, you're definitely on alert. So you have a radio, you can be working out, but uh, as soon as that radio is called, you drop what you're doing and you go rescue someone. Uh, if you're off shift, obviously you're sleeping, you're resting, you're talking to family, uh, doing laundry, all, all the normal human stuff. But when you're on alert, like that's very serious because you have to be ready to go uh, at any point during that time period. And so, so how quickly can you get up in the air um, on alert? It's been a few years now. Uh, I think our goal was always from, from the site airborne in about five minutes. Wow. Uh, but it all depends on where you're deployed, right? Like on what type of alert you're on. You could be sitting in the helicopter. In that case, the time is going to be less. Or you could be sleeping. And in, in that case, obviously, the time is going to be more. So um, it's all different. But, yeah, if, if you can get off the ground in a couple minutes, that's definitely the goal. So I'm, I'm a little curious on, like, you know, the Air Force loves its checklists. Yeah. And like, we need to do this, 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 and before we take off. Yeah. Um, is there instances when you're overseas and you downed airmen, terrorists are within like five miles? Yeah. Like, we're just like, you know what? We're just going to do this as fast as possible. Mm -hmm. And we, not that we necessarily skip the important steps, but where we shorten the timeline there to yeah. get in the air as fast as possible. Yeah. Your question's exactly right. We're obsessed with time, right? So when we're on, de when we're on deployment, we will have. Uh, shortened checklists, but everything has been, uh, I would say, vetted or tested throughout our experiences. So, uh, so you could have an aircraft that's quote unquote on alert, and that aircraft is going to have a very shortened checklist uh, to get airborne, as opposed to an aircraft that is not on alert. It's going to take a little bit longer to get started. Um, but there are still checklists to everything. In the rescue community, though, obviously, we've tried to simplify those checklists to what is literally important and nothing else uh, because of the time required to run checklists. So that's a really good question. Yeah, and there's checklists for everything still. Uh, and the goal is to be able to get those checklists done as quickly as possible, especially on a rescue mission for the exact scenario you described. So.
What is the, so you mentioned there's a checklist for everything. Mm-hmm. What does the checklist look like when you're coming in, you know, you're looking to actually pick this person up? Yeah. Like, are you allowed to say, speak to that a little bit? Yeah, so the checklist is all about uh, risk. It always comes back to risk management. So yeah, if you're gonna skip checklist items, you have to be able to justify that uh, and, and have a risk management uh, decision behind that. Um, as far as coming in and picking someone up, it's always, obviously if you take more time, it's gonna be safer uh, for you as the aircraft, but less safe for the person on the ground who's vulnerable. So that's the balancing act is, how can I get on the ground as quickly as possible without um, doing something unsafe, like hitting a wire or hitting a tree or seeing something on the gr- or missing something on the ground that is dangerous, like a threat, some, some enemy activity. Uh, so, and that's where the training comes in is like you, the training environment is super important. So when it's real world, it's almost second nature and it is, uh, because most of us train to that level. So. Awesome. So I think if we want to go more to, if, if anybody wants to become a rotary pilot, and I know we were mm-hmm. talking a little bit about this at the beginning. Yeah. Um, so I think the process now is talking to somebody, it's like an application, it's almost like an NJEP lab application. Um, yeah. And the numbers, I think last year was like, it was not a lot of pilots going to uh, the rotary uh, path, but what would you say to somebody who wants to go rotary? So the first thing is it's a new, it's a new program, right? Like I think this was the second year that we've sent cadets directly to rotary wing. So it's going to be changing. So the first thing to do is make it known that that's a goal of yours to your AOC, especially Um, because that, because that program changes so much that the AOC is going to be. Uh, your biggest asset in that process. So make it known, number one. Um, After that, uh, take advantage of the leadership's opportunities and the aviation opportunities here at the Air Force Academy because obviously your grades are going to carry you a long way, so do well on the academic side of things. But then what we were really looking for were well-rounded cadets. So those cadets who not only had good grades uh, but took advantage of a leadership position, uh, took advantage of the opportunities at the airfield, um, did well uh, in a club sport or a team sport, um, some sort of that, so well-roundedness. So make sure you communicate with your AOC early and often that that's what you want to do, and then work on being that well-rounded uh, leader here at the Air Force Academy. Mm. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. And what was, uh, what was one of the biggest lessons you took out of pilot training? Uh, and it could be fixed swing or rotary. Uh discipline for sure so pilot training is a very uh specific process very time time uh tried process like the air force knows what it's doing it's going to get student pilots in and out as efficiently as possible and to make that happen you have to learn discipline pretty quickly and the air force academy does i think it, it sets you up well for that kind of environment uh for pilot training as far as memorization, study skills, um, uh, just finding out what's important, what you need to study, what you don't have to study at certain periods of time. Uh, but that's what I learned most, from, I think, from pilot training is just like a disciplined mindset. So you'll, you'll hear the term chair flying, of course. I don't know if you've heard of that term yet. Uh, so that is a habit that is beat into you throughout pilot training and beyond. And that is uh, a skill set that you can take outside the pilot world as well. So just a disciplined study uh, technique and habits. So, mm. 
And so I, I don't have we had chair flying explained yet on the podcast. Do you want to yeah. speak a little bit to what I will definitely is? not demonstrate it. It's oh. been been too long since I've done that. But chair flying is what you all do for your classes here, right? Like so you have a big presentation in history 100 and you don't want to upset major hussy. So you go through mental reps of that presentation. Um, so the people who are successful in pilot training are successful at getting mental reps on the ground before they go actually fly. And so that is chair flying, is being able to sit in a chair and literally visual visualize your sortie, uh, how it's gonna go from engine startup to shutdown and everything in between, um, and be able to do mental reps. So that's all, all chair flying is. And it's a skill that you all are basically already doing here at the Air Force Academy um, when you prepare for stuff for class or whatever. So uh, it's just, beat more into your head once you get into uh, pilot training. Alrighty. A any any other questions before we get to uh, the the last question? Uh, I don't have any. Do you want to introduce the uh, yeah, final Yeah, so it's a little bit of a tradition here. Yeah. Um, I feel like every single pilot so far, and so every single pilot I've met, has been able to defend their, uh, their aircraft, their beloved aircraft, as the best aircraft in the Air Force. All right. So do you share that feeling about the PAYPOC? And if so, why? Why is it the best um, aircraft in the Air Force currently? For the sake of the podcast, yes, it is the best uh, <laughs> aircraft uh, in the Air Force. We are this H-60 or combat search and rescue or the rescue mission. We are the insurance policy. So that's how, that's how I describe it. Uh, I don't know if that's fair or not. Um, but without us, uh, you can't. We are there for people's worst day, like that's that's cliche, uh, but no one plans for their for for their worst day. So we're the ones that are the insurance policy. So if something goes unplanned, something goes wrong. Uh, literally, the rescue mission is to fix that problem. Uh, so that's why we are the best airframe in the Air Force. That is a off record, defense. off record, yeah, off record. All right. Is, <laughs> is there yeah. is there another aircraft that you think is better? Oh, man. And if so, which one? I've always loved the uh, mini bird, so or the little little bird, the MH6 uh, mm -hmm. that the the, Air, the Army uh, Special Forces fly. So are you so, a little jealous? Yeah, that thing's pretty cool. So <laughs> I always liked the movie Black Hawk Down growing up, which is really weird. Yeah. Uh, but that that helicopter always seemed really cool. So yeah, that's awesome. That's not an Air Force though, so <laughs> I can't. I, I have to say that off the record. All so, right, all righty. Yeah. Any uh, any closing remarks? Uh, no, like. Thanks for having me on. I hope you all continue to do this because I think it's pretty cool. Um, and then if anyone, I know this is primarily for cadets, right? So uh, if anyone out there has questions, you can ask, ask these two gentlemen. Uh, they'll be able to point you in my direction, um, whether that's about history or uh, aviation or anything else. You can always come find me. So. Oh, thank you so much for coming. Yeah, yeah so pleasure. thanks again yeah, to uh, Major Hussey for coming on the podcast, episode five of the Flyover Podcast. As yeah. always, all these episodes are on YouTube, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts, so pick the platform that you want to listen on. And for sure, uh, leave a like, subscribe, and share with anybody you think this would be informative on, and we'll catch you all in the next one.